Good morning. Trump indicted. First former president charged with a crime. The United States squanders its role as peacemaker. Another Lower East Side institution on the auction block and a profile of lawyer Arthur Schwartz. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Drienzo with the news for Friday morning, March 31st, 2023. Donald Trump's prediction he would be indicted by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg was borne out Thursday as a grand jury returned the first indictment of a former president of the United States. The charges remain under seal, but they stem from the investigation of payments made to silence a porn star named Stormy Daniels during Trump's 2016 run for the most powerful job in the world. New York City's 35,000 cops have been told to be in uniform and ready in case of protests or other reactions by Trump supporters. Democratic Representative Adam Schiff was at the forefront of both of Trump's impeachments, the first following allegations he tried to cover up collusion with Russian oligarchs. The second impeachment began in the last days of Trump's presidency after the January 6th attack on the Capitol. The Senate declined to convict Trump both times. Schiff, who Trump slurred during his first impeachment as Shifty Schiff, says the indictment is a sad day for the United States. Well, it's a sober moment for the country. Uh, you know, I think about uh, people that have occupied the Oval Office, uh, dignity they brought to that office, uh, and how this will be tarnished uh, by uh, the conduct of the former president, by his being charged criminally. Uh, now, he was already twice impeached, but, but nonetheless, this is an historic change uh, in the history of our country. Uh, I do think that if the grand jury found probable cause to believe that he had committed a crime, and they evidently did, and the Manhattan DA believed he could prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, they had an obligation to go forward. Uh, it's important, I think, for the establishment of the rule of law that we treat everyone equally, whether they're a former president or an ordinary citizen. So I view this as an affirmation of the rule of law, but nonetheless, a, a pretty sad day historically that we see a former president who uh, is brought up on criminal charges. Democratic Representative Adam Schiff. Prosecutors say Trump is expected to surrender to authorities next week to be fingerprinted, have his mugshot taken, and be booked like any other person accused of a crime in this country. Trump has denied wrongdoing and called the indictment political persecution. In international news, in another first since the Cold War, a U.S. correspondent in Russia was arrested and accused of being a spy. The Wall Street Journal reported Evan Gershkovich faces up to 20 years in prison. The arrest comes as relations between the two countries have hardened. In February, Russian President Vladimir Putin suspended the New START Treaty, the last arms control agreement between the two largest nuclear armed states. The last time a U.S. reporter was arrested was 1986, when Russia was part of the Soviet Union. Reporter Nicholas Daniloff of U.S. News & World Report was accused of espionage, but released two weeks later. Meanwhile, the recent peace agreement brokered by China between Saudi Arabia and Iran may be assigned United States global political hegemony, a position of status and power above all other nations enjoyed by this country since the end of World War II, may be coming to an end. The executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft is Trita Parsi. He says the United States has given up its role as an uninterested peacemaker in return for using its massive economic and military power to bully smaller nations. The United States has deviated from a role of playing the role of a mediator. And for that, the toughness, etc., is not necessarily a critical variable. We have deviated from that because we have chosen to take sides and we've made ourselves a party to conflicts rather than staying out. And we're now seeing the Chinese stepping up and stepping in and starting to 
mediate at least successfully between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Perhaps they will have some success between Russia and Ukraine. We're seeing a completely different approach in, in the case of Iran and Saudi Arabia. They completely stayed out of the conflict, a disciplined neutrality there, and as a result, they actually had the credibility listened to by both sides and managed to get them to normalize relations, which ultimately I think is good for the U.S. as well. If we completely cease doing these type of mediations, leave the people in the region and elsewhere with the impression that China is a is a pragmatic peacemaker in the United States is the one you turn to when you want weapons and war. That's ultimately not going to be good for the United States. How did this come to be? I think part of it is that our militarized foreign policy has thrown ourselves into all kinds of conflicts all too often, and that's been highly problematic. We have a increasingly ideological way of looking at conflict and the role of statecraft. We view it as taking sides. We believe that justice is on the side of history and we want to be on the right side of things instead of recognizing that statecraft is an imperfect exercise of pragmatic conflict management in which more often than not, a peace comes at expense of at least some justice. It's frankly better because if we're going for total victory or total justice, then we will probably end up prolonging conflicts rather than resolving them. Do you think this is a problem with just the political mindset of the United States in this day and age? Because of the fact that we have been seeking to dominate almost every corner of the world militarily, it's very difficult to pursue that posture and at the same time be an honest, neutral broker. And as we are now going into what appears to be a great power competition with China, we're going to be doing this even more than before in the sense that we are going to use our military as well as our diplomacy to aid our allies and partners and show the benefit of allying with the United States rather than seeking to be an honest broker that can secure a long-lasting peace. This is part of how we will compete with China. We will bring countries to our side, and as a result, they will gain the benefit of us tilting the scales of diplomacy in their favor. That approach is one of confrontation and conflict, not one of actually seeking to create stability, I I would argue. Take the Iran nuclear deal, a rather clear-cut case of very, very good policy. Granted that we abided by the deal, of course, which we didn't once Trump pulled out. But was it good politics? No, it was not good politics, or at least it was very costly politics, and it could only have been done by an extremely committed president in his second term. What is China doing that's different? One argument that is oftentimes used here in Washington is that, well, the Chinese, they don't have any opinions, they don't push human rights, they don't care about human rights violations, and many of these autocracies are more comfortable with it. There's definitely truth to that. It's just a very incomplete picture. That makes it sound as if we really care about human rights and that we make it a priority in our policies, and we do not. We may talk about it, but it's not as if we have been really pushing the Saudis, for instance, on human rights. And if we have, we've been really bad at it because there's hardly any games to be pointed to. Reminds me of what happened to Khashoggi. There was a lot of talk. There was some pressure on the Saudis, but ultimately it didn't lead to anything and we kind of dropped it. And, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have in the sense that, you know, the U.S. has many different interests and we can't completely that some of these issues dictate what we do. The problem is that we said we would do it and then we didn't follow up again, creating that tension. We're pretending to be extremely 
moral and have moral clarity, but in reality, we're going to have to pursue far more pragmatic policies. The other aspect of this, this Chinese element that I think is important to recognize is that some countries are more comfortable working with China because China doesn't interfere internally or criticize the human rights record. But there's also another more important aspect, in my view. Countries react to what they perceive to be threats. The United States has a tremendous capacity of threatening them, not just because of our military, but as of late, we have shown friends and foes that in five days we can cut off Russia entirely from the global financial system. That's terrifying for a lot of countries. They perceive the United States as not being a reckless country. For the last 20 years, we have a lot of reckless things that we have done. If you're sitting in those countries, you worry about that. You may over-worry about it, but bottom line is the things that Trump did, for instance. And if something like that happens again, he comes back or another president behaves similar to him, this is extremely worrying for those countries. These countries, even if they're friends of the U.S., even if they prefer to stay friends with the United States, they still like there to be another country like China that they can use to balance against the U.S. if the U.S. turns against them. Where do you see this all heading? We have at least one gigantic war going on in Europe right now and plenty of other conflicts threatening to break out in other places around the world. I mean, it could go in many different directions, obviously, but one that I hope that we pay more attention to is that in this new world that is multipolar, the critical thing for our success is going to be our ability to be able to coexist with countries that have completely different perspectives may have other values, but we nevertheless have to find a way to share this planet with them. This was perhaps more of wishful thinking in the past because the United States was so powerful that it could do more or less what it wanted. That is no longer the case. We live now in a world where other countries have options. They can choose to side against us and side with China, etc. That makes it more important for us not to conduct ourselves the way we've done in the past because the consequences are going to be much more dire. And that requires us to be much more pragmatic and also not necessarily moralizing every issue on the international scene and recognize the necessity of being pragmatic and create a culture in Washington in which pragmatic politics is is not bad politics. Trita Parsi is executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. He's author of an opinion piece in the New York Times, The U.S. is No Longer an Indispensable Peacemaker. He writes, All roads used to go through Washington but that world no longer exists. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. In local news, the borough of Queens is celebrating its first recreational marijuana dispensary and the first pot shop to open outside of Manhattan. Called Good Grades, its owner, the first woman to open a legal smoke shop is Ecstasy James. Her first customer was Queensborough President Donovan Richards, who bought a bag of gummies. James says she grew up in Jamaica, Queens, and her immigrant father was kicked out of the country for selling weed. Her mom had to raise four kids alone. In neighborhood news, a theater located in the East Village, one of the oldest off-Broadway venues in the city and a former speakeasy once managed by organized crime figures, is facing what could be its final curtain call. More than a dozen supporters gathered at City Hall on Thursday to encourage the city to come up with a plan to get what they call a predatory lender off the theater's neck. Save Theater 80! Save Theater 80! Save Theater 80! 
During the Prohibition era, the building on St. Mark's Place was a speakeasy, one of many places to get an illicit drink during Prohibition, the decade-long period when booze was banned in the United States. Owner, Lorcan Otway, whose family bought the property 59 years ago, lives above the theater with his wife. He says a lender bought up the theater's debt during the height of the COVID pandemic when theaters were ordered closed. He says the lender was more difficult to deal with than the Giganti crime family who once controlled the building. The Giganti family, quite seriously, were gentlemen and they were a lot easier to deal with when they came to loans than the modern predators. We built Theater 80 with a loan from, from organized crime, which is why we built the museum. And I have fond memories of the fact that they wanted us to succeed because they wanted a stable neighborhood. And now you got organized crime behind us taking the money. City Hall the has too. been bending over backwards to try and fix this. Uh, the, our problem has been with the state government and then the federal bankruptcy court. The commission has been doing an extraordinarily activist job to try and save Theater 80, and we are extraordinarily thankful. We see this as a uh, new potential for the arts in, in New York. Vincent Giganti, known as The Chin, was head of the Genovese crime family in New York City. Otway says he has until next week to come up with $13 million to pay off his creditor. He has $6 million but needs some time. We're here because we're down to the last few days to do this. We want to show this as a community that believes that we cannot afford to lose another theater in New York. We've lost 55% of the theater industry last year. We really need to uh, turn that around. Otway says the theater has a rich history the city should protect. He says he and his dad found $2 million in a safe in 1964 and returned the money to the mob and won their gratitude, including easier loan terms. The former speakeasy was owned by Walter Sheeb, who Otway says was a frontman for a bootlegger named Frank Hoffman. Theater 80 is a 101-year-old venue this year. Started life as a speakeasy in 1922 when... Prohibition ended, it became the Jazz Gallery. Then in 1964, alone from organized crime, my dad, Howard Otway, and I began to build Theater 80. We excavated the auditorium by hand. Woody King of the New Federal Theater helped do the concrete work. Your good man, Charlie Brown, opened there in 1967. We have been a pillar of the independent commercial off-Broadway scene up until the shutdowns of uh, the past two years, at which point we had just refinanced, because with family business, as family members die, you have to give their estates their share of the business. So we had just, we had just gotten a $6 million mortgage. The state then shut down our museum, our theater, and our tavern. At the uh, end of the day, we found ourselves that we could not sustain the mortgage. The uh, note was sold to a predatory company that in about a year and a half doubled our indebtedness. We filed bankruptcy. We couldn't file a reorganization plan because there was the shutdown was still on. Once we reopened, the uh, court had appointed a Chapter 11 trustee, which is very rare. She canceled a $47,000 film shoot capriciously so that we could not then reorganize after the shutdown was lifted. We asked why they were not allowing the film shoot. They gave us a number of reasons to do with insurance, to do with the cost of electric, all of which we answered. 
Theater 80 also houses the Museum of the American Gangster, a bar, restaurant, and a 199-person theater. Lorcan started the endeavor with his father, Howard Otway, who was born in Ireland. He was a novelist, a playwright, poet, and he walked in and said, I'd love to build a theater here, not knowing that there was $2 million hidden in the basement and that the uh, owner of the gang had disappeared in 1945 and they were looking for somebody to loan the money to who would then lose it back to them and they could then open the hidden safes and if in fact they, um, the boss came back, they could blame my father. As it was, we found the safes. Dad called up the head of the gang and said, I'm too curious to leave the safes closed, but too cautious to open them without you. Uh, we opened the safes, found two million in gold certificates, and as a result, the gang was quite happy with us. We actually fell behind in our payments just before Charlie Brown opened. They gave us a few months grace, and uh, the rest is history. Organized crime was better than the government. Oh, no, absolutely, and better than, than the new uh, hard money lenders. We actually, throughout the rest of our lives, a very good and respectful and distant relationship with them. So you hope to be open and doing business again as a restaurant theater pretty soon? Uh, we hope so, but it's, it's, it's a race against time now. And theater promoter and community activist Paul Zolkowitz says Theater 80 is a crucial element for attracting tourists and their dollars to the city, as well as a stage for ideas and movements shunned by the mainstream. It's one of the first, you know, true off-Broadway theaters in New York. It's the only one with a Broadway-sized stage. It is probably the uh, most famous and well-known of all off-Broadway theaters. Where else would you uh, do um, things for Lynn Stewart? Where else can you mention the name of Mumia Abu-Jamal, Leonard Peltier? Where else can you talk about indigenous worldview? Because, you know, radical art and radical politics are one and the same. 53% of our tax dollars goes to the Pentagon. I don't think a penny goes to arts and culture. Arts and culture is critical to the First Amendment. How we express ourselves, how we assemble together, how we build a democracy, we don't have one. Theater and film in this city is probably, as a workforce multiplier, a more important industry than finance. Production here and everybody around the world wants to come here. In theater, 80s Heyday is a gangster hangout. It was riddled with triggers for explosive booby traps that could slow down a police raid as the occupants made their way through a warren of subterranean passages. Outway says the public can tour the facility, but only if the city comes through and helping negotiate a way out for a former gangster's paradise. In more local news, the drama of attorney Arthur Schwartz and his fractious network of former clients, employers, and political rivals has ramped up with protests, letters to the editor, and accusations of double dealing over the past month. The West Village district leader is a perennial candidate for various local offices, but rarely if ever elected. Schwartz is a labor lawyer whose clients have included the Transit Workers Union, the Pacifica Foundation, owner of radio station WBAI, and various reform and regular leaders of city unions. The latest controversy involving Schwartz is his support of the sale of assets belonging to the foundation to pay several million dollars in loans, racked up as listeners have fled the network and funding dried up. Many Pacifica stalwarts are bitterly opposed to the sale and have accused Schwartz of gutting the foundation to pay $150,000 in fees he says he's owed, a charge Schwartz denies, sort of. I've been paid in a year, 600 hours of work, right? And you know what? My grand hourly rate is $250 an hour. 
when I hire local lawyers in California to move me in the local filing and stuff, they charge $750 an hour. They owe me $150,000. That reflects 600 hours of unpaid work. I did the math. I mean, it's like, so... They will never do anything you don't force them make them do. I sued Pacifica because a lawyer who I know who was doing their general counsel work on the, on the East Coast, Dan Silverman, who used to be the NLRB regional director, they owed him 100000 bucks. They owed him seventy five. So I sued Pacifica for him, and they hired a lawyer, and they didn't pay the lawyer, so he quit. So we wound up getting a default judgment and sucked $100,000 out of somebody's bank account in California. Pacifica has historically not paid their lawyers. The lawyers quit. They do a shit job on, on representing the foundation. So you know what? I, I'm willing to put in the time. I figured at some point I'll get paid. At some point, somebody's going to start raising some money. Mm-hmm. Schwartz adds, selling the property is Pacifica's best move. I say to the board, you guys have one person left. You owe $2 million to the SBA. You owe $2.5 million to FJC. There's a million dollars in outstanding bills. So my 150 is just part of a much larger $6.5 million debt. And you have a building in, in L.A. that's falling apart, and you only use 20% of it. Why Why aren't you selling it? His role at Pacifica is not the only controversy swirling around Schwartz. A few years ago, he represented the head of Transit Workers Union Local 100, representing the subway and bus drivers in New York City. Evangeline Byers, a candidate for president of Local 100, says she was disqualified due to what she calls a conspiracy against her led by Schwartz, who is lawyer for the union's election committee. This election, the TW Local 100 union elections, were stolen once again by the Samuelson Utano administration under the orchestration of a scheme to suppress the vote and dissent of the members of Local 100 by Arthur Swartz and the Elections Committee. We have documented proof that this is what has just occurred, and we need to talk about this and make sure that this never happens again. Schwartz says Byer's accusations are not true. I said to her lawyer, Jeannie Meyer, who I've known for a long time, how about just let's agree to let her on the ballot without agreeing that she's right or saying that we're wrong or whatever. And they said, no, we want to win. We want this. This is a principal point that we're in favor of. It was unreasonable to keep her off for just no, but that's the she rule, had COVID. Rule the rule. So that didn't mean she couldn't pay her dues. She had a month to pay her dues. She said that she was not given proper notice. No, she was given notice. And you know what? When because the the, the rules are the rules. The problem here is if you bend a if there's a rule, fair unfair, within seven days after getting filing your petitions, you must file a notice of acceptance. And I've had cases where someone didn't file the notice of acceptance, even though they were the ones that handed in the petition. So I've been in court on that, and someone got disqualified, and the judge said, where do you bend it, for one day, do you bend it for five days, do you bend it for one week? If you're going to enforce a rule fairly so that it isn't subject to manipulation improperly, you enforce the rule. If it says you have to cross every T and dot every I, you cross every T and dot every I. The third major controversy that's been galvanizing Greenwich Village, where Schwartz is a district leader, are accusations he tried to force out 95-year-old George Capsis as publisher of the popular Westview News. 
Schwartz admits he made some mistakes, but he was trying to save the paper from Capsis' caretaker, Dusty Burke, who he says is a conspiracy theorist. Schwartz eventually lured writers from the Capsis paper to a new paper he founded, The Village View. Schwartz says his paper is going to be a collective of workers and that he'll pay distributors double what Capsis paid. It's a, it's a collective of people. People contribute. We sit down. We look at the issue. Everybody comments on it. Put this on page three. Put this on page two. Why don't we run this? Why don't we run that? I love it. It's a, I don't have to hardly do anything. I write my stuff. Um, I, I tried. I, I'm a little more attentive when I walk past a new store. I take pictures and take a picture of the new owner and say, new coffee shop. You know, like people like that local shit. Um, but, you know, George can run. So his, his paper... What happened was after two months of him running a page three story from the Lyndon LaRouche's chief of staff um, and and stuff like that and, you know, stuff about the World Trade Center and how the CIA blew it up, the staff didn't want to be involved. The contributors didn't want to put in their time for that. So they can see now he's got somebody with some money. They write write about 401ks and... um, financial issues and um, turning oil into medicine, some guy who's invested in that and writes a story every month. You know, if he, he if, and, and, and Dusty gets to put her crazy shit in there, um, that's fine. He can do what he wants. I know that people aren't interested, and he is not. All the people that distributed his paper by hand, they quit because he wasn't paying them. So the same guys distribute village view and i make sure they're paid twenty dollars an hour but burke says she and capsis are the victims then he started sending emails behind george's back and copying all these people saying he owned the paper when he never did he was totally gaslighting and lying but schwartz hangs firm that dusty is a problem get rid of dusty and everyone will come back and then we can have one big happy family i don't really want to be in charge of this thing Burke says Schwartz's allegations she sleeps in the same bed as George is laughable. She admits she does, but there's a reason. It was appalling how he had tried to taint my behavior by by insinuating I sleep in bed with George. I sleep fully dressed except my shoes every night, like a little kitten at the foot of the bed with a blanket, because George got COVID, and I took care of him through COVID instead of sending him to the hospital. His grandkids live upstairs, his children are around, and Arthur, who knows I'm not fucking George, wants him to have that reputation. Dusty Burke is caregiver to Westview News publisher George Capsis. And that's the news for Friday morning, March 31st, 2023. You can find the news at pauldurienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening.